According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. I want to build on where we left it a week ago, dealing with verses 24 and 25, and then launch from there into the fourth of the five warning passages of the book of Hebrews, verses 26 through 31 as a warning. Some people even carry the warning down past verse 31. We'll discuss that. It is the longest of the warnings we've covered so far, and it does have an extension. Uh, I believe verses 32 and following is an extension of the warning where the readers are being admonished to think back to the early days. And uh, so we'll deal with that here shortly. But last week we were centering on the priesthood. And in verses 19 through 25, we have therefore, therefore. There's two therefores. Since we have and since we have. Since we have. Verse 19 says, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ. What a privilege. And then verse 21 says, since we have a great priest over the house of God. Those two, since we haves, are universal for the entire body of Christ. That they are for every believer of the church age. They are for you and they are for me. I don't care if you were saved 40 years ago or you were saved this morning. You are a believer priest in Christ. And you have the same since we have that we all have in terms of confidence to enter the holy place and uh, through the new and living way that he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We have confidence and we have a great high priest since we have a great priest over the house of God. Those two since we haves then give us three let us applications. Let us, let us, let us. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast, fast and let us consider. Let us, let us, let us. And so really it's a marvelous text uh, as you have the whole structure of the paragraph here with the since we have, since we have, let us, let us, let us. And then that third let us is what's followed by the not. Not forsaking. So when we consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, the biggest thing that will keep you from love and good deeds, the biggest thing that will keep you from stimulating one another, keep us from functioning as a priesthood, is if we lose sight of our eschatology, if we lose sight of our blessed hope. And as it says, not forsaking our own epi-sunagoge. That is our rapture doctrine. It is not, it's so much bigger than just quit skipping church. It's so much bigger than, uh, you know, don't neglect being a churchgoer. Okay? And it's, it's, it's difficult to overcome that. We've got 2,000 years of preaching traditions whereby every preacher in the history of the church age, this is the go-to text to tell church-skipping members to quit skipping church. And it's easy. It's easy to preach. I preached it. Everyone's preached it. But it says so much more than just quit skipping church. It actually speaks to the episynagogue of Second Thessalonians chapter 2 that references the gathering of ourselves together. That's what we can't neglect. The great gathering. The great epi-sunagoge. Not just a synagogue. You ever been to a synagogue? That's a synagogue. It's a synagogue. And there's all kinds of synagogues. There's all kinds of assemblies. And the readers had their assembly where they were located. And the author had his assembly where he typically would assemble. There were different assemblies. He wasn't writing to his home church. There were different assemblies. 
but we all have the same assembly when it comes to the one and only epi synagogue. There's only one. And we share it with every generation of church age saints. Every living generation has been under the conviction that we are the rapture generation. And we are waiting for that epi synagogue in the sky. And that's what we cannot forsake. Not forsaking our epi synagogue as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, exhorting one another. When you read 1 Thessalonians 4, you read 1 Thessalonians 5, you read 1 Corinthians 15, you read John 14, I don't care, you read Philippians 3. Any rapture passage you ever want to study is going to come with the expectation that this text is encouraging. This text is an encouragement. This text is a comfort. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Rapture doctrine is always encouraging because it's our living hope. It's our blessed hope. And here too, we see the same thing. Encouraging one another. Parakaleo, exhorting one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so we have the application here. All right. Well, we're ready now to launch into verses 26 and following. I didn't even pray yet, did I? Let me say a prayer and we'll, uh, we'll get right to it. Join me in a word of prayer. Almighty Father, we do come before you unworthy, but made worthy. In ourselves, Father, we have no confidence to stand before your glory. But in Christ, we have every confidence We stand before your glory because he is worthy of all things and we are in him. I thank you for this powerful positional truth. It becomes an experiential blessing as every believer priest of our dispensation, we get to stand before, not a mercy seat, a throne of grace. We enter within the veil that is his flesh. This is a powerful message, Father. We want to learn it. We want to live it. We want to fully express it day by day in our marvelous, our marvelous priesthood function. So continue to teach us these things, Father. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so with this tremendous exhortation then comes the what if, what happens if we don't, all right? So we have let us, let us, let us. Well, what if we don't? And when it says not forsaking rapture doctrine, well, what if we do? What if we don't live up to the expectations of verses 19 through 25? Well, glad you asked. There's a warning that's given starting in verse 26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. You know, there are certain passages of Scripture that are so hard-hitting that once the Holy Spirit has ministered that to your soul, you realize, wow, I defy this to my peril, that the Holy Spirit has given this to me and He expects me to live it. I have to make application to whom much is given shall much be required. We're going to see that. And so to have this priestly paragraph given in 19 through 25 and then to walk away from your priesthood is a willful defiance worthy of God's wrath. And we see these verses here. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And so this gets your attention, doesn't it? This is rather frightening. You think, ooh, I don't want that. Okay, that sounds bad. And it actually sounds half as bad as it needs to sound. It's more bad than you think. 
And uh, because the, the typical fear of losing salvation or the Arminian heresy that sometimes gets built on this passage is not nearly fearsome enough. All right? That's nonsensical and unthinkable because no one can lose their salvation. This is a scare worse than that. See? Because it's the present wrath on a priesthood that should know better and actually does know better. So God deals with them as the accountable believer priest that, that ought to know better when we've had that kind of doctrine. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Remember that? The Old Testament was brutal. Death here, death there. Every time you turn around, the punishment is death. What do you think we deserve? What do you think we deserve when we uh, defile the cross of Jesus Christ? How much severe punishment do you think we I know it says he will deserve, but just put your own name in there. How much severe punishment do you think we will reserve when we trample underfoot the Son of God? Well, the author keeps it as a he who instead of a we. All the positive uh, blessings are, are we's. Let us, let us, let us. The author includes himself and all the positive commands. When it comes to this, the willful defiant sin, he does start off with if we go on sinning, but then He talks about anyone and he who. He who uh, will deserve so much a severe punishment. He who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. This is a warning that uh, should frighten us all. All right. So, moving on to the warning text then. The fourth warning passage out of five, remember there are five in the book of Hebrews. The fourth warning passage of Hebrews opens and closes with terrifying. We've got terrifying in verse uh, 27, terrifying expectation of judgment. And then you've got terrifying in verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is not the lake of fire for all eternity. This is not losing your salvation, which is impossible to do. Those unbelievers that stand at the great white throne and they go to the lake of fire for all eternity, they're not held in the hands of God. They are separated from the hands of God. They're separated from His presence. They're separated from His glory. They're separated from His mercy. It is believers now, today, in time that are still in the hands of God. And to be in the hands of an angry God when we put ourselves in an adversary uh, position, that's a terrifying thing. So we open with terror, we close with terror. Remember, none of the first three warning passages were threats of revoking salvation. Were you with us when we were back in chapter 2? Was that a threat of losing your salvation as we studied it? Of course not. It was a warning when they had a a danger of uh, falling short and not entering into rest. Or the warning passage is given in chapter 3 that crosses into chapter 4. See to it that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Was that a warning text that was trying to scare somebody and losing their salvation? No. None of them are. The third one in chapter 5 and 6, that's not a... None of them teach you can lose your salvation. They're all dealing with present discipline upon believer priests who should know better, and God deals with us on a corrective basis as with, as with sons. Discipline is designed to be corrective, and hence that's the purpose of temporal life discipline when God administers it to you. 
And you should be familiar with this. This is no shocking, no-brainer to anyone. I mean, in, in the sense that we talk about you, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. <laughs> we can learn academically. We can learn in Bible class. We can learn with positive volition. We can learn in humility under the Word of God, and we can thank Him for teaching us. Or if we fail to learn the easy way, <clears throat> then God has a remarkable remedial program whereby remedial instruction comes across loud and clear. And His remedial program comes through testing, circumstances, discipline in life. And we learn the hard way through the hardship of, of affliction and suffering and what we should have learned academically all along. And then He gets our attention. We go, oh, that's what He was trying to teach me. That's what I was supposed to learn. All right, I got it now, Lord. Okay, And we take it from there. So just like the first three warning passages, this fourth one is not a threat of, revo- of revoking the salvation. And here's a clue. The last one isn't either. Warning, uh, warnings four and warnings five. None of them are a threat that you can lose your salvation because that's insane. You have eternal life and that's a gift uh, to you. That's a gift from the Father to the Son. And it's the will of God the Father that Jesus Christ lose not even one. If he loses one believer, he's in defiance of the Father and Jesus can't do that. And so we understand the eternal security of the text. Now, willful sins. What are willful sins? When you know better. Willful sins are not only unintentional sins. In other words, sins of accident or sins of of inattention or sins of of a sloppy application. Now, this is you full well know better and you are in open defiance. Willful sins are not only the unintentional sins, like Numbers 15 talks about, but they also include the sins of omission as well. When you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, that's a sin. James 4, 17. Doug's got a song based on that verse, and you can come out here and sing it for us. He who knows the good to do and does it not, sins. Let's start first of all with the unintentional sins. Let's start with those that are not willfully defiant sins, okay? And I think Numbers 15 spells this out. And uh, in verses 29 and 30, it's pretty clear. I like turning here because it's so explicit. It's Old Testament. It's not New Testament, but it's nevertheless, it's a great illustration of what we're talking about. And it borrows from this language and when it quotes it in the book of Hebrews, about willful, intentional sins. Numbers 15. <clears throat> and all of these are procedures for the Levitical priests on the Day of Atonement and these things. Now, verse 29 says, You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally. Unintentionally. For him who is naive, or I'm sorry, native among the sons of Israel and for the alien who sojourns among them. So if you're not from here, but you're living here, you follow our laws. That's how it goes. And so wherever you're from, unless you want to go back to where you're from, if you're going to stay with us, this is the law we operate under. And for Israel, it's the law of Moses, all right? Mosaic law for the Jewish people. But again, the issue is unintentionally. Notice the the change in verse 30. But the person who does anything defiantly, defiantly, and in Hebrews it says willfully after coming to a knowledge of the truth. 
The person who does anything defiantly, whether he's a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. So understand this. The procedures that were in place, and we tend to think that, that you could do, you could bring a goat for anything. We tend to think that, well, you know, if you had a sin, then Leviticus has something for you, right? That uh, whatever your sin is, maybe you need the, the sin offering or the trespass offering or the peace offering or the meal offering or the, or whatever. I mean, maybe you're really getting obscure into a red heifer offering or some kind of a scapegoat. You're, you're scouring Leviticus trying to find something that's going to help you. All right? And what we don't realize until we get to this passage and other passages similar to this is that Leviticus doesn't help you for your willful sins, for your defiant sins, for your blatant rebellion against Yahweh Elohim. Now, if it's unintentional, if it's not willfully defiant, that's the difference. Because we all fall short. We're all sinners. We all miss the mark. And we may want to repent of that and bring a goat and be restored to the priestly fellowship for Passover or Pentecost or any of the, the festivals or new moons. But for the defiant, what did he have? The willfully defiant. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, there was nothing Levitical that was going to help him. The penalty for adultery is death. And then he murders Uriah to cover his tracks. Again, there's nothing Levitical that's going to help him. The the wages of sin, I mean the murder, the penalty for murder is death. So David is under two death sentences. What's Leviticus going to do for him? nothing. There's no offering. There's no animal. There's no sacrifice. All he can do is confess, throw himself on the mercy of the Lord. And for the Jewish people, every year they had a marvelous uh, reboot called the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the whole nation will be washed clean. And then those, even those that had been willfully defiant and so forth, they would then have an opportunity to start over with the new uh, season, the new calendar, and all the rest. So that's the, uh, the impact on that. So there's unintentional versus intentional. And the difference being that, oh, well, I didn't know. No, the difference, you knew, but you weren't defiant about doing it. Now that's, a, that's an issue there too. All right. But look at the words in verse 31, Numbers 15, 31. Because he has despised the word of the Lord. This is what happens when you're defiant. You're despising the word of the Lord. We're going to have that insulting language in Hebrews 10. You look at the at doctrine, you say, I don't care. I'm more important than what that Bible says. I don't care if the Bible says don't do that. I'm going to do that. And you willfully, defiantly stand in defiance of the Word of God. And so it says in Numbers 15, 31, because he has despised the Word of the Lord and has broken his com- commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. All right, so we have the unintentional sins. We also have the sins of omission as well. In James 4, 17, remember if you know the thing to do and you don't do it, that's a sin. It's a sin of omission. And we probably do more sins of omission than we do sins of commission. What do you think? Would you care to estimate the ratio on that? The number of sins you do by commission as opposed to the number of sins you do by omission? Well, when you're young in the faith, you don't know about quite so many and so you're ignorant and unaware of all the things you're not doing that you should be doing. But the more you grow and the more you learn, the more you become aware, wow, there's an awful lot of things I should be doing and should have been doing all along. 
And I'm just now coming under conviction that I need to be doing these. James 4.17, Therefore to one who knows the right thing to do and does it not, to him it is sin. And so now in this context, the willful sins that Hebrews 10 is warning about, when it says, not neglecting the episynagogue of ourselves together as is the habit of some, the willful sins for the church's priesthood in Christ is to not obey the three let us imperatives. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider. And if we don't engage in that triple lettuce, by the way, nobody told me the third lettuce. I came up with romaine and I came up with iceberg. And then I figured the potluck Sunday was the ideal Sunday to throw it out to my flock to rescue me and give me a third lettuce and no one did. So I'm, I'm stuck. But we have lettuce, lettuce, lettuce. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. And when you stop drawing near, when you stop holding fast, when you stop considering how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, then you are in the willful defiance of this sin of omission that this warning passage is is talking about. Why did Jesus go to the cross if you're going to deny this expectation? So, the willful sins for the church's priesthood in Christ is to not obey the three let us imperatives from verses 22 through 24. And so if we go on neglecting those imperatives after having them written in the Scripture for us, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. We don't get the annual Day of Atonement reboot. What do we get? A certain expectation of judgment. God's discipline is going to get our attention. The expectation of judgment is terrifying on the basis of the law of expected requirement. This is called the law of expected requirement. I forget who called it that. I do. Somebody else did. Luke 12, 48. To whom much is expected, to whom much is given. Luke 12, 48. And recognize that we have been given more than any believers to ever walk this earth. Luke 12, 48. You should know this text. We all should know this text. And, of course, there's uh, some slaves. And uh, there's a faithful and sensible steward. Write your own name in there and say, I want to be this guy. In verse 42, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Okay, so that's, put your name in there, say, I want to be that guy. I want to be the faithful and sensible servant, steward, and I want to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing when he comes and catches me doing it. <laughs> when the trumpet sounds and Jesus descends, what am I caught doing? I want, to caught, I want to be caught obeying. I want to be caught serving. I want to be caught as a faithful and sensible steward. So blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Wouldn't it be great? I mean, where would I rather be but this pulpit with this flock when the trumpet sounds. And, and I can just look to my Lord and I know, He knows, we, we both know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing right here, right now. All right, then there's this other guy and you don't want to be this other guy. So write, don't write your name in this other verse because that's not who you don't want to be. This is uh, the slave who says in his heart in verse 45, my master will be a long time in coming. 
See, you lose sight of imminency. You think the rapture's taken forever so it can't come today. You're wrong, it can come today. But that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat his slaves, both men and women, to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know. Okay? Now this is not a rapture text, this is not a church text, this is an Israel text. So we don't have to worry about being cut in pieces and assigned a place with the unbelievers. That's not a church application and we can't lose our salvation. In any event, which of those two slaves do you want to be? The one that says, well done, because you're found faithful when he returns? Or do you want to be found the one that's chopped up into pieces because he was faithless? A wicked, lazy slave. Going to receive many lashes. Now, but the principle comes down to this in verse 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. So there's the giving of much, and then there's the requirement because he's given you more than any stewardship's ever been given, he requires more of you. He requires more of the church than he ever required of Israel. He requires more of the church than he ever required of, of the Gentiles. He requires more of, uh, than even he required of the angels. Remember, there have been stewardships before ours. The angels had a stewardship. Adam and Eve had a stewardship. All the Gentiles had a stewardship up through Abraham. It's been Israel's stewardship after Abraham until Christ. The church has the greatest stewardship because we've been given the most. And so there is the greatest requirement. And then there's the expectations. Not just what we've been given, not much, not beyond what's required is what's expected or what's asked all the more. To whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask or expect all the more. The more expectations you have, the more you ask. And this is what we have. So it's the law of expected requirement. And when uh, the author of Hebrews asks, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve? We can answer that with, uh, not with a, a, a regular number, not with a finite number. We have to answer that with the infinity symbol of everything. Much more. Infinitely more. Infinitely more accountable. So again, the imagery is an Old Testament believer. He set aside the law of Moses. He went out to gather firewood on a Sabbath day. What did he expect? What did he get? He got death. He was stoned for picking up firewood on that very first Sabbath day. What do we expect? Much more than stoning. Much more than something as quick and easy as a physical death. We have the ongoing wrath of God in our present spiritual walk. The hand of God's discipline upon us until such time as we do repent. All right, it's a terrifying expectation of judgment. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And I find it interesting the amount of people that are banking on God's mercy and they don't know the first thing about God's mercy. They don't know the first thing about God's righteousness. In fact, they don't give two hoots about God's righteousness because they're, they're living as a God unto themselves. They're living on their own standard of what they want to do. They've made an idol out of themselves and they think God's going to let them slide. Yes, God is a God of mercy, but... No attribute of God's is to the exclusion of every other attribute of God. Yes, He's a God of love. 
But he's also a God of wrath. He's also a God of justice. He's a God of righteousness. And all of these things are blended together in a unity of the simplicity of God. And so to count on mercy when it's not the venue for mercy is uh, that's a bad that's a bad bet. They're counting on mercy and it's not the venue. Talk about setting aside. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses, what's a set aside? Violations of law are fundamentally set-asides and replacement with personal preferences. That's what you do. You set aside the law of Moses and you substitute with what you want to do. You substitute with what you're okay with, what you say is fine. And other people say it's fine. And we we excuse each other. (laughs) And we have parades and everybody says it's fine now. In fact, our generation says it's all cool now. We need to update the Bible. God was wrong. He had it wrong back in the day. No. We don't set aside the will of God and replace it with our own norms and standards. That's wrong. We don't replace with our own personal preferences. And we do this all the time. God says, uh, do not steal. Thou shalt not steal. Parents say, don't steal. Don't, uh, don't spoil your dinner. Don't buy, you know, but of course... The cookie jar was very tempting, and I was the oldest of my siblings. I was the tallest. I could reach the cookie jar earlier than some of them could. And what do you do? Authority says don't, but carnality wants to. And so you set it aside. And I'm going to substitute with what I want. And mom and dad aren't going to know anyway. Dad said he counted them, but I don't believe him. And uh, he won't miss one or two. And my siblings aren't going to rat on me because, you know, I'm the biggest and I can give them whatnot. So I bullied them into silence. So you see how one sin all of a sudden just became four or five sins all interlinked together. Romans 1 says, you know God, but you don't honor him as God. And you're substituting the uncreated creator for the creature. It's a horrible thing. Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Really, that's what we do every time we sin. Every time we sin, we're setting aside God as the Creator and say, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And we replace it with our own personal preference. It's a magnification of self-will over the personal will of God. So instead of saying, not thy will be done, we say, no, my will be done. Right? Jesus said, not, thy will, but not my will, but thine be done. That's what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? I'm butchering this terribly. But Matthew 26, verses 39 and 42. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he, he's praying to the Father because he doesn't want to go to the cross. His humanity does not want the cross. But he knows he needs to. And he knows that if he, uh, while he's thinking about it, that he can't act upon those thoughts because that would be a, that would be a sin. He knows the good thing to do. If he doesn't do it, that'd be a sin. So Jesus goes to the cross and he says, not my will, but thine be done. He won the victory at that volitional battle. And we all, it's not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin when your sin nature says, I want to go steal that cookie. And when you start thinking about it, you're playing with fire because you know you want to. And then when you start planning it, that's when you've crossed the line into carnality. Okay? Long before you physically do it. Jesus thought about it, and he knew that if he was to do such a thing, 
that we don't get saved and that his father is defied. So he says, not my will, but thine be done. We turn that upside down when we sin. We, we say, not thy will, but ours be done. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I got to be me. That's, uh, I don't know who sang that, but that's the, is that Frank Sinatra? Who sang that? I got to be me. All right. Theology of Frank Sinatra. Well, not my will, but thine be done. That's what we're called to do. You know, there was plenty of mercy in the Old Testament, but there was no place for it whatsoever in the sentencing phase of a judicially convicted violator of law. There was plenty of mercy in the Old Testament, but in its right place, in its right application. And it's, to me, it's extraordinary that the bulk of mercy that you find throughout the Old Testament, well, two things really. First of all, in the Pentateuch, mercy is everywhere because it's the mercy seat that they have in the center of their, of their Holy of Holies. And so they approach the mercy seat and they get to put the sacrificial blood on the mercy seat one day a year. But beyond the mercy seat, which has hundreds of uses, there's the actual pure mercy in the term that's used is really found in the prophets. It's found in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and Habakkuk. Wow. I had no idea that the prophets had so much mercy. As uh, most of the prophets were uh, speaking about a lot of wrath and a lot of judgment and a lot of things to come. But there was mercy again and again and again in the prophetic messages. And I find that interesting too. And so... um, and I don't mind looking at these. Um, we taught Isaiah and Jeremiah not that long ago. You might recall Isaiah 63. Verse 7 says, I shall make mention of the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of the Lord. According to all the Lord has granted us are the great goodness and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which He has granted them according to His compassion and according to the abundance of His loving kindnesses. So it's a a great message to start this off here in 63.7. Then in verse 8, For He said, Surely they are My people, sons who will not deal falsely. So He became their Savior. In all their affliction, He was afflicted. In other words, He identified with them and He took their place. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the, day, all the days of old. I think that's a marvelous text. That's a, that's a promise, that's a statement of mercy in the Old Testament. I'll stop there because then they... He got ugly after that. All right, but Isaiah 63. As, as the Jewish people would respond to God's grace and God's mercy, and then more often than not, they would turn to idols and they would rebel, and it's, uh, it's something else. All right, Jeremiah 31. This is a chapter that has the new covenant in it. But prior to the new covenant promise comes a statement of mercy. Jeremiah 31.20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. And I think every parent of adult children gets this verse. 
Because <laughs> they see the adult children being Ephraim in rebellion, but they remember Ephraim in his youth. And they remember the love of raising that boy and, and uh, the delightful child. So he says, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. These are such tender and precious promises and it makes replacement theology so blasphemous when the church comes along and tries to wipe Israel off the map and says, nope, Israel doesn't have a future. Uh, The church is stealing all their blessings. Evil, evil, evil. Israel has a future, the same future they were promised in the Old Testament. They have an eternal future and the church does not steal that in any way, shape, manner, or form. Ezekiel 39.25 This may be more of a rabbit trail than you care to go down this morning, but I think it's useful. The fact that there's plenty of mercy in the Old Testament is just not when it comes to the judicial function of the justice of God. In judicial function, there's no place for mercy. Daniel 4.27 or did I read Ezekiel yet? Ezekiel 39, 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they perpetuated, perpetrated against me. So this is after the dry bones and the destruction of Gog Magog and the millennial blessings of Israel. He will have mercy on them there. Daniel 4.27 Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins. Daniel is speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar here. He's about to lose his mind and become an animal for seven years. He says, break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Nebuchadnezzar was advised to have the mercy of God towards his own people. Hosea 14.3 Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Hosea 14. The last prophet to the last northern king. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. True statement. Hosea 14.3. Finally, Habakkuk 3.2. Habakkuk. Habakkuk the hugger. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Habakkuk. Scared me there. I thought someone stole Habakkuk. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. That's Habakkuk 3.2. All right. So there's plenty of mercy in the Old Testament. Even in the administration of wrath, national wrath, national judgment, there's still place for mercy. But not in court. 
not in a judicially convicted violator of law. He is guilty. He's been adjudicated guilty. There is a sentence to execute. And on the basis of two or three witnesses, everyone in the Old Testament is going to be put to death without mercy. No place for mercy in the sentencing phase of a judicially convicted violator of law. And for this, uh, three chapters of Deuteronomy, starting in Deuteronomy 1. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall, not, you shall hear the small and the great alike. You're not going to let, let a guy slide with some mercy because he's rich and powerful and he can pay off, make, uh, make things uh, grease some wheels there for the judge or whatever. There's no partiality in judgment. That's a defiance of the justice of God. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. And so that's Deuteronomy 1.17. Deuteronomy 10.17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien. There's no place for mercy. He can't compromise in his justice. 19.13. Deuteronomy 19.13. Hmm. Premeditated murder here. In verse 11, if there is a man who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies... There you go. It's premeditated, motive, means, opportunity, murder. He flees to one of these cities of refuge. City of refuge doesn't rescue him. City of refuge is not a rescue from uh, the guilt of the murderer. Then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood, the blood avenger, it's the kinsman redeemer of our Savior, that he may die. You shall not pity him but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel that it may go well with you. Do you, want, you know why there's no mercy for this murderer? Because his victim got no mercy. What mercy did his victim get? His, his victim's dead. What a miscarriage of justice to show pity or give mercy to this convicted murderer. It is not humane. It is uh, biblical to remove the evil from your land. A purge the blood of the innocent from Israel. Innocent blood defiles the land. It's worse than any chemicals, pollution. It's worse. It is land pollution. Innocent blood is land pollution, biblically speaking. And so when the Old Testament says uh, everyone perishes on the basis of two or three witnesses without mercy, how much severer punishment do you think we, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve? Us in the New Testament who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant, and insulted the Spirit of grace. Those are tough expressions. And we may not like the fact that it's phrased that way. We might groan and say, did you have to put it that way? God did. He did put it that way. Trampling underfoot the Son of God. Do you want to walk all over Jesus? Do you want to walk all over the Son of God? Stomping on Him, trampling under, trampling underfoot. 
the Savior that purchased your eternal life. And you're going to trample Him underfoot. How much severe punishment? How about infinity? How much severer? Well, again, the law of sowing and reaping, the law of, of uh, what we've been given. Okay. The law, the, uh, what do we call that? The, uh, the law of expected requirement. How much more have we been given? Luke twelve forty eight again, to whom much is given shall much be required. Have we not been given much more than the Levites ever did? Of course. We've been given, we've got Greek canon on top of the Hebrew canon. We've got two, an Old Testament and a New Testament. So we've got double the accountability. And we've got God the Holy Spirit indwelling us, teaching us the Bible. We've got things they never even dreamed of. How much more have we been given and entrusted? You understand stewardship means you're entrusted with the oracles of God. Romans 3.2. Say, why did I put Romans 3.2 on that slide? Because it's the prime blessing of stewardship. First of all, Paul got so excited about this, he never got, it took him several chapters to get back to second of all, third of all. Here in Romans 3, he said, what advantage has the Jew? What's the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Identify that in Romans 3.2 and say they had their stewardship where they were entrusted with the living Word of God. We have our stewardship where we have their canon and our canon both. We have the Holy Hebrew Scriptures, the Holy Greek Scriptures together in 66 books, what we call the Bible. And what is our advantage? Great in every respect, greater than the advantage they had to be entrusted with the oracles of God, to have the mind of Christ, to know. And remember, once you know, you're accountable. We know. We have Scripture. 1 Peter 4, 17. Where does judgment begin? 1 Peter 4, 17. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Understand our accountability is ferocious. We're going to judge angels. We've got to get judged first. We're going to judge the world. We've got to get judged first. We're going to judge Israel. We've got to get judged first. There's a reason why the rapture and the judgment seat of Christ is a private event in heaven before any other public judgments take place on this earth. Because we've got to get judged first. Judgment begins with the household of God. We straighten us out first. Take the plank out of our eye before we start looking for a little speck in our brother's eye. Judgment begins with us first. So how much severe punishment? Well, how much more have we been given and entrusted? It is uh, an infinite, immeasurable amount. But keep in mind, I love this too. In some ways, because there's a juxtaposition here of deserve with grace, and in some ways, as scary as this passage is, I think the Holy Spirit threw a little uh, hidden treasure in here. Because as soon as he said, deserve, (laughs) 
How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? And let me tell you, friends, when he said that word deserve, every last one of us just got a, got a, a rope. We got a life vest. We got a rope thrown to us, a little, a little uh, what do you Navy guys call that? That ring you toss out there, the floaty ring so you don't drown. Because he used the word deserve. And I can stop and say, wait a minute. I'm an object of God's grace. My salvation, my walk, it's not about what I've earned or deserved. Thank God. It's about what Jesus Christ has provided. And I receive what He purchased. It's His merits. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. And so He used that word deserve and all of a sudden there's a little tiny ray of hope Wait a minute, what's this verse really talking about? Because then he ends the verse with, he has insulted the spirit of grace. Yes, wait a minute, grace. I know I've deserved the lake of fire, but God's grace has given me eternal life. And so, are we going to have our times of darkness? Of course. Are we going to have our prolonged carnality? I hope it's not too prolonged. Are we going to have a season of reversionism? I hope it's not that long. Make it a short season. But as bad as it ever gets, remember, it's a God of grace that saved you. It's a God of grace that can get you out of that darkness. And how much severe punishment do you deserve? A whole lot more. But you're not getting what you deserve. You're getting the grace of God when He forgives you. So there is a juxtaposition here. Deserve with grace. And this brackets what I find to be a very vivid description of church apostasy. Because until you recover from your darkness, this is what you're doing. Until He gets you out of the muck of your reversionism, you are trampling, you are regarding as unclean, you are insulting the Spirit of grace. This is, instead of drawing near, holding fast, and considering, you are trampling, regarding as unclean, and insulting. And so you're swapping out the three lettuces with three shameful, shameful descriptions. All right, trampling underfoot. Like when mom says, why are you dragging, tracking mud through my kitchen? Tracking mud through my kitchen. We learned, and my mother learned, <laughs> uh, the lunch plate was left on the porch outside the kitchen sliding door. And I learned to get there at the appropriate time because the cats would get it first or somebody else would get it. And if I wanted lunch, it was going to be on the porch. I was not going to come inside until dinner because I had only half a day's worth of muddy shoes and the other half was still yet to go. And uh, that had to be dealt with before dinner. But the uh, trampling of my courts, you know, Israel's trampling of God's courts was enough to label them Sodom and Gomorrah. The church's trampling of God's Son is infinitely worse. Are you familiar with Isaiah chapter 1? Israel trampled God's courts, and they did so when they self-righteously showed up in church. They were trampling His courts. Isaiah 1, verses 10 through 12. This is uh, so um, explicit because of the name-calling He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. He's writing to Jerusalem, but he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Does that get, does that, this should get their attention. Designed as an intention getter. You know, when you call somebody a name that conveys a significance of something, if I call you a Benedict Arnold, what am I saying? I'm saying you're a traitor. I'm calling you a traitor. If I call you a Hitler, that doesn't mean anything anymore. It used to mean something. I haven't heard more Hitler references in the last two years than it's been crazy. But we use pejorative names and they should have a significance. When Yahweh calls Jerusalem, Sodom, and Gomorrah, that gets their attention. It ought to. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Says the Lord. Now they are still a religious people, externally religious, but internally they're a wreck. And he and it stinks, he can't stand it. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Well, what's the problem with that? They were commanded in Leviticus, weren't they? Aren't they good legalists? Aren't they good observant uh, religious people? They're bringing every sacrifice they were supposed to bring. And God says they stink. I'm sick of it. And he's calling them names. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? And there it is. Why are you trampling my courts? Why are you trucking mud through my kitchen? As my mother would say. Or why are you trampling my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of assemblies. See, here's the problem. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. They have open, rampant sin. Flagrant iniquity. And yet, the idea is they could just be religious about it, bring a sacrifice and everything's good. You know? Yeah, everything's great. And I can, you know, I can be whatever sinner I want during the week. I can have all these other sins going on. I could have, you know, I could be oppressing the poor. I could be killing people. I could have a, I could have a mistress stash somewhere. And as long as I show up on Sunday and put money in the offering plate, you think God will be pleased with that? No. That's what they were doing. And he said he hated it. I hate, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Why are you blending these? I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. You ever have it up to here? That's where God had it up to. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. He says, I'm not listening. You've got to get, you're carnal right now. You've got to confess. You've got to be restored to fellowship. I'm not hearing anything until you confess. It's the same thing today. Until we first John 1, 9, if you are carnal and you're begging God for all kinds of stuff, he's not even listening. He's listening for one thing and that's your confession. When he hears that, then he'll hear what comes after that. But until you're in fellowship, he's not going to hear a thing. And that's what he says here. I will not listen. Even if you can multiply prayers, I'm still not listening. Children think if I just ask often enough, you'll finally break down. 
Okay? Inmates thought the same thing back when I worked in the jail. Just ask him, ask him, ask him, ask him, and I would have to tell him, so I don't care how many times you ask me, my answer is not going to change on the 50th time you ask me. In fact, I'm getting more ornery right now because you keep asking me more and more. The answer doesn't change. Your hands are covered with blood. I will not listen. So he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from your sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good. In other words, confess. That's our cleansing procedure. That's what washes us. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's as simple as that. So until you cleanse yourself, he's not listening. He's not listening. He's not accepting your sacrifices. He's not accepting whatever amount you put in the grace box. It's not, it's wood, hand, stubble at that point, you're carnal. And the, the little widow can come along with two leptocoins in fellowship and give more than you just gave because she's in fellowship and you're out of fellowship. That's the principle of grace giving. So you have that pretty brutal language in Isaiah 1 where he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah and that was Israel's trampling of God's courts. That was enough to get them labeled Sodom and Gomorrah. What about the church's trampling of God's Son? The church, the body of Christ, and we trample God's Son. That's the language that's used here in Hebrews 10. Infinitely worse. Infinitely worse. For we know... Verse 30. For we know... Him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. Him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So you don't fall for the... There's, there's a... I don't know if it started with the Enlightenment or it started with a bunch of German liberals or it started with a bunch of American liberals or... They're all following the same idiocy these days, but wherever it started. But there was a, there was a lunacy that put forth the idea that the Old Testament God was the God of wrath and anger and ugly stuff, but the New Testament God is the friendly, happy, loving Jesus, turn the other cheek kind of thing. All right? You encountered that? Been exposed to that? The author of Hebrews wants to make it very clear. There's only one God. (laughs) And this lovey-dovey teddy bear attitude you have, you've got to get rid of that. He is, yes, he's the Lamb of God. He's still the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Yes, he is the tender shepherd who holds us in his arms. He's still Yahweh Tzibayoth, the Lord God of hosts. It is a terrible, terrible thing, to, terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God. Vengeance is mine. He's the God who said that, yes. You know, yeah, did Jesus say turn the other cheek? Absolutely, Jesus said turn the other cheek. He also said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Jesus said a lot of things. And he means all of them. We are accountable for every jot and tittle. The whole counsel of the word of God. So he did say, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He did say, the Lord will judge his people. And guess who his people is now? His heavenly people. His bride. Israel is still his people. Israel is his earthly people. We are his heavenly people. Two peoples. Not complicated. His earthly people and his heavenly people. Those with millennial promises in the new covenant and those with heavenly promises in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
And so uh, judgment does begin with the house of God. It begins with us. And we know Him. We know Him. I'm going to come back next week and touch on this. We know Him. Can I get through it this morning? Uh, Probably not. All right. We know Him. And that makes it worse of all. Because we know Him. Knowing Him makes it worse. The intimacy we have with the God we know makes it worse because we know Him. We'll pick up on this. Knowing Him is a blessing. Knowing Him is a good thing. Knowing Him is a sense of intimacy. It's good to know the one that you love. I mean, I recommend it, especially if you're married and you want to know your spouse. Okay, And you get to know them more and more. You get to know them better and better. All right? But when it comes time for judgment, guess what? That intimacy, you know Him. You know what pleases Him. You know what displeases Him. You know what defies Him. You know it's coming because you know Him. And you know that He loves you. And He loves you enough to, to get that discipline on the way. It needs to be on the way. All right, we'll pick up on this next week, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Father, I thank You for Your truth. I thank You for Your faithfulness. I pray that we learn these lessons and we learn them the easy way, not the hard way. We want to learn them in Bible study. We want to learn them through the appropriate application. If there's things we're failing to learn, then thank you for the remedial training that comes through the the discipline in our lives. Father, the discipline is not pleasant, but it's useful. And afterwards, we can look back with hindsight and thank you for the discipline. But next time, we'd rather not go through the discipline. So we want to be diligent We want to be obedient. We want to be faithful in the here and now. Father, I want to thank you for not only what we're learning, I want to thank you for our present life in Christ, but this, Father, is simply a deposit. It's a down payment. There is a glory to be revealed, and it could be revealed today. Might today be the day that the Lord returns. What a glory that's going to be. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.